This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Yining. I'm a PhD candidate at the Department of Government at Harvard University, where I'm a political theorist working on a dissertation on post-colonialism and decolonization in Southeast Asia. Today, I'm so excited to be talking with Dr. Joseph McKay of the Australian National University about his new book, The Counterinsurgent Imagination, A New Intellectual History. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Dr. McKay is a fellow in the Department of International Relations at the Australian National University. He holds a PhD from the University of Toronto, and he works on historical international hierarchies, international security, and the history of international thought. So, Dr. McKay, I thought we'd just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about where this book came from and how you came to the topic. Sure. Well, um, the book originated as a um, as a political science international relations dissertation. Um, I was a, a kind of a critical humanities undergraduate way back when, so I had a kind of a, a prior orientation towards, I guess, broadly questions of intellectual history. Um, and for, for for reasons, wound up in the social sciences for my PhD. It was looking for a kind of a, I guess, a, a fairly a fairly conventional project on the. Um, uh, questions of kind of political violence broadly understood, origins of political orders, sort of big, big basic things like that, that to which international relations I hoped could speak. Um, and the uh, the literal immediate source of the project was um, the, the project kind of started where the book starts. I was was rooting around in the source material looking for 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 a puzzle as as we do, and um, uh, was looking at some of the applied counterinsurgency material, thinking it might have something to say about what was not well understood about these things. And instead, what reading particularly this 2006 David Petraeus article on what he claims he had learned in uh, in Iraq about counterinsurgency. Um, found that um, that the text was itself just kind of facially obviously puzzling. The instructional texts themselves are just just unusual documents, uh, short ones, long ones, old ones, new ones. They don't tell you how to do what they say they are telling you how to do straightforwardly. They come with this large extra ideological load of, of various kinds, and that load varies a lot over time. So the, the question was just um, how to make sense of that variation over the, the historical longer haul. Uh, so I took that to, to what was then my, my doctoral committee, and they said, well, um, so I did something a little bit more conventional for the PhD, and then in the revision came back, and uh, and the, the book became what, what it is, which is this kind of long-run intellectual historical reconstruction of, uh, of what I call counter-revolutionary war. That's fascinating. And your the main theoretical argument um, is, is, you know, beautifully and succinctly um, uh, encapsulated in these three terms. Um, you describe counter, the counterinsurgent imagination as conservative, um, high modern, and utopian in nature. Could you tell us about this main theoretical claim? Sure. So the, the, the kind of the starting um, argument or premise of the book is really just the, the sort of definitional apparatus, which is that politically speaking, counterinsurgency or, or counterrevolutionary war has these, these three qualities. Uh, the first is that it is um, it is conservative, uh, or at least becomes conservative, um, and this is 
very nearly a definitional matter, right? It's conservative in the sense of being opposed to change, being uh, prone to conserving or um, or reacting against change over the longer haul. It's a form of counter-revolutionary project. Um, now, what gets conserved changes over time, but that's the, the kind of the, the, the basic first premise. The... The second I get from James C. Scott, the uh, the political anthropologist who describes what he calls a a condition of high modernism in in certain sorts of um, political or state making projects, in particularly the twentieth century, by which he means a kind of a um, a way of viewing and acting in in the world and seeing the world, particularly visualizing the world, which is. Um, uh, which is grounded in uh, in a kind of a normalization and in formalization and 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 um, and in visualization of the world as as linear, straight, systematic, alighting local detail, variation, mess. Generally, this is his fairly famous argument in in seeing like a state. Uh, and so, my claim is that counterinsurgents do that; they see the world on those terms. And finally, I argue that it's utopian, um, and I use that word mostly to capture a sense of scale. Uh, counterinsurgency as um, something that is perhaps done locally, um, but imagines uh, projects of making the world a certain sort of thing, making making the world a certain sort of a certain sort of um, a certain sort of thing in terms of uh, of how it's how it's structured politically. So it's conservative, uh, a, a kind of conservative utopia, uh, and its way of proceeding to a conservative utopia is high modern in the sense of avoiding any kind of, um, any kind of variance, any kind of flexibility, any kind of local, any kind of local mess. So the argument is that the counterinsurgency acquires that quality around when the word counterinsurgency is coined. It first crops up in America, about 1961 or two or so. Um, around American defense intellectuals, particularly at the Thuran Corporation. Uh, and what the book tries to do is reconstruct um, that moment and the way those ideas persist from there, but then also running back from there, how um, how ideas about small wars or counter-revolution or what have you vary over the last several centuries running up to that, that consolidating moment. So let's talk about the historical story that you just um, referred to, right? You say that it kind of becomes that conservative, high modern utopian um, project. Um, although actually, now now that I say that, um, is there like a sort of irony there in the characterization? Um, you know, the the irony that I see reading the book is that. Um, they're conservative in the sense that they're trying to prevent um, a radical overturning of the existing order. Um, but in the in the course of trying to um, prevent that radical overturning, they actually create or try to create the world that they think they already inhabit, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So there are, in a sense, there are two, two ironies running in parallel here. On the one hand, the worlds they're trying to recreate are, in a sense, fictions. Um, they're idealizations. They are... Um, the things that American counterinsurgents are doing in Southeast Asia in the 1960s don't involve converting those countries into some version of the actually existing United States of America. They involve trying to enact some sort of some set of American liberal centrist anti-communist political ideals. Think of somebody like Ed Lansdale in um, uh, in Vietnam and, and the Philippines and elsewhere, um, trying to uh, you, you're trying to enact a kind of idealized vision of American. Um, of, of an American-led political order. Um, so on the one hand, the the thing they're reconstructing isn't always particularly 
real, uh, present or recent past. Uh, on the other hand, the target moves because over the longer historical haul, um, counterinsurgents often lose, counter-revolutionaries often lose, modern political change, um, whether we want to call it progressive or not, the change happens, right? So the, the, the present or recent past that conservatives are often trying to conserve or recreate is itself a moving target over over time. So if you look at this in early modern Europe, it's some sort of absolutist monarchy or something like that, depending on the context. Um, context of the French Revolution, it's about suppressing um, liberal nationalist revolutionary ideas in in, in, uh, in Western and Central Europe. Um, you look at the European colonial empires, it's about the maintenance of, of colonial rule in um, at that point, chiefly in Africa and Asia. Um, so the, the, the target of what's being conserved moves as well. So that, that formulation, that tripartite formulation is a form, not a content, if you like, because the content that's being fed into it to the extent that it, versions of it predate the, that 1960 or so threshold, uh, they, those, those contents shift over time, sometimes quite dramatically. And then bits of that old stuff will tend to wind up baked in later on, often kind of kind of submerged, forgotten. It's often there without, without the, uh, the the re-articulators of it quite knowing what they're uh, what they're carrying over. I like that that kind of submerging and forgetting. Um, I want to get to that um, for sure later when we talk about the manuals as genre. Um, but let's start with the let's let's go on with the in- intellectual history um, that you that you really that really forms the meat of the book in a way and is the substance of chapter one. So. Could you tell us about um, that long-run history that you re- reconstruct um, and and bring us bring us up to speed, basically? Yeah. So there's there is this sort of um, kind of putatively long chapter after the introduction that that synoptically reconstructs the history uh, over the long haul. Um, so being as quick as I can, uh, the um, the the earliest recognized counterinsurgent or counter-revolutionary manual broadly is a uh, an instructional text on colonial warfare from uh, the Spanish in uh, in Central and South America, uh, Chapin Vargas Machuca, dated 1599. Um, and it recirculates a bit. We see it recur over time a little bit, but um, it, it's a surprisingly odd text. And the next the next eruption of these things happens not in, in colonial context so much as in uh, in Europe itself, particularly Central and Eastern Europe, where um, a bunch of ideas are uh, about what are known chiefly in, in French and German as small wars. Um, begin to enter the European military mainstream from uh, what are seen to be kind of marginalized peoples in the region from rural settings and what have you. Um, so um, militarized peoples like Cossacks or um, uh, or others in, in Central and uh, particularly Balkan Europe become ideas that European military practitioners are interested in. And they can kind of appropriate these people as separate sorts of military units that will operate as so-called light infantry or what have you. And eventually these things get formalized. Uh, formalized in a series of instructional texts around the um, roughly the late 18th century. Um, so we have this, this this class of things called small wars that are not particularly conservative. They're certainly not 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 utopian in any set of ways, and they're not yet high modern. So how do you get from there to where we um, where we are now? Well, part of this runs through the um, the kind of translation of the concept of small wars into colonial contexts. So we get um, late 19th century instructional texts by people like uh, Charles Edward Caldwell, who's one of the case studies in the book. Um, and um, 
and a variety of rough French equivalents who write instructional texts essentially on the production and maintenance of European colonialism. Uh, and they are uh, much more explicitly ideological. They have the ideological project of, of, of the empires they represent. Um, Caldwell, at least, is quite conservative. He, he's, he's quite explicitly opposed to kind of liberal or, 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 or progressive or reformist conceptions of empire. He's explicitly a kind of a, a reactionary about those imperial ideas. He's writing around right around the end of the 19th century. So we begin to see a kind of nascent conservatism there. Um, and eventually, over the run of the 20th century, we begin to see what might be thought of as high modern ideas creeping in as well as counterinsurgency becomes attached to um, to uh, to the, the kind of the big ideological projects of the 20th century, but also to to new revolutionary projects because they're responding to new things. So by the time these guys are responding to um, Maoist revolutionary war in, um, in in East and Southeast Asia, they're reacting to a kind of a, a big systematic high modernist Marxist project of revolutionary change, and they begin to internalize ideas from their opponents along the way. Which means that's the second irony in the in in the theoretical argument, right? This is the, I think, I think I'm uh, quoting or misquoting um, Sujit Siva Sundram um, in his book here, but he he says that imperial agency, imperial counter revolutionary agency, folds in um, the revolutionary agency um, of the colonial um, insurrection. That that was I was reminded of that in your argument. That sounds like something he'd say. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is roughly the um, roughly the form of argument here. That the, the practice of um, the the practice of opposing someone will eventually lead you to take seriously their ideas. And in the colonial context, this means that they end up internalizing a bunch of ideas from uh, they, they the counterinsurgents or, or the the imperial counterrevolutionaries wind up internalizing a bunch internalizing a bunch of ideas from the the political projects they're opposing, which are which are themselves these big reconstructive enterprises of revolutionary change. And do they do that? Um, do they do that because it's it's a central way in which they're able to counter the revolution, or do they do that for kind of some other reasons? I think they often don't know they're doing it. Um, a huge amount of this is, I think, a fairly a fairly subconscious, um, uh, a fairly subconscious or not not wholly reasoned out set of set of things that these folks are doing. Um, they do have to deal with their opponents intellectually and otherwise in order to 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 at least attempt to to do what they think they're doing. Um, but uh, in in so doing, they will tend to wind up. Um, uh, tend to wind up appropriating a bunch of ideas to which they thought they were opposed. So the kind of ideal case of this for me is is David Galula, the, um, the 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 French North African counterinsurgent theorist, who's the the, the third case in the book. Um, so Galula spends um, uh, spends a good bit of time in East Asia in various guises as a, a military attaché, um, first in uh, in Republican China and then later in Hong Kong. Uh, and ends up seeing a lot, uh, directly and indirectly, of, of of Maoist revolutionary war first in China and then and then elsewhere in the region, um, uh, and internalizes a bunch of a bunch of the conceptual apparatus of what revolution is from that. Meantime, we know from we, we think we know from his probably from his reading habits and certainly from his formal training that he actually didn't know a whole lot about traditional prior conceptions of, of European colonial warfare. So he's building this whole thing up himself from these, these specific contextual, contextual cues. So he doesn't have a lot other than his enemies to draw on. 
Um, so he winds up picking up this this Maoist story where he says essentially, "Well, we'll defeat the the the, the revolutionaries by running the Maoist program stepwise in reverse." Um, he says this fairly explicitly. Um, winds up picking that up and taking it to the Algerian Revolutionary War, which was. Um, uh, only, only notionally socialist, certainly not Maoist, and had limited connections to the, um, quite limited when he was there, uh, connections to the to the broader communist world, uh, and says, "Well, we'll do it here." And then, of course, it doesn't quite fit, and so he says, "Well, we'll make some exceptions." But the the kind of paradigmatic core of his program winds up still being stuff that he's borrowed from his from his opponents rather than anything he's learned in any any particularly practical way or from from past practice. And the 1960s seems to me to be a particular. Um, hinge in this intellectual and uh, intellectual historical as well as theoretical story that you tell insofar as um, it's by the 1960s in the um, not the wave but in the kind of cluster of um, counterinsurgent wars um, against um, decolonization in the global cold war that we really see the um, emergence or the full emergence in a way of the kinds of counterinsurgent um, war that you describe. So can you tell us a little bit more about the 1960s then as a hinge in this story? Yeah. So that, that, that long chapter I was talking about does start in about 1962. There's this kind of catalytic moment where, uh, where the Rand Corporation gets a bunch of people together and, you know, in a, in a hotel conference facility in, in Washington, um, uh, Rand people, uniformed people, a number of people who weren't American, um, uh, French Kalulu was there, British uh, Frank Kitson was there. Um, uh, Filipino uh, Napoleon Valeriano, a Filipino American officer who'd served against the Japanese and then against the communists with the Americans and eventually became a U.S. citizen. Um, these folks had served all over the place, um, just about literally, uh, and brought in this kind of catalytic account of counterinsurgency, which they would then um, uh, repackage to become the kind of the standard American form of counterinsurgency, which is what we now. Um, we now talk about today when we use counterinsurgency or abbreviate it as coin or what have you, hearts and minds, all population control, all of that stuff. Um, so the, the kind of catalytic moment out of which that emerges is that that moment in the early 1960s, uh, which is not coincidentally around when the word counterinsurgency is, is coined. Before that, we're talking about a variety of kind of other cognate concepts. Um, so all of that happens in uh, not quite the context of Vietnam yet. Um, that's that that's still getting going. But American support for uh, the residual European colonial empires, to the extent the U.S. was supporting them, um, the the perceived project of opposing um, the rolling out of communism uh, here and there, the Cuban Revolution that just happened, um, and so on and so forth. So it was a kind of a Cold War liberal anti-communist project in that original form, and we get that. Um, more or less down to today and with some, some twists and turns along the way. Um, but getting to that moment requires all of this odd prior stuff. One of the things that's interesting about these people um, in that, that 1962 moment at Rand is that they're not terribly backward looking. They don't cite, as far as I can work out, they, don't, they didn't cite any historical events from before 1945. They don't cite prior manuals. Um, all of that stuff is is taken to be passed as as a kind of prologue. They think they're not interested in any of that. So when we go back and we find that they're recycling ideas that date from, say, um, the French around 1900 in, um, in, in Southeast Asia or North Africa, um, that date from... Um, 
the Marine Corps War, Small Wars Manual, uh, U.S. 1940, which contains a lot of material recycled from um, from the American occupation of the Philippines. Uh, when we find that stuff creeping back in, it's all stuff that they're either pretending isn't there or because we have a, a kind of transcript of the, the conference that they maybe don't even think they're recycling. Uh, and yet those ideas uh, resurface along the way. So it's a hinge point, but it's not the hinge point that they think it is. They think they're starting fresh and in practice they're um, they're uh, rethinking ideas that um, that had been kicking around in various forms along the way. They're getting rid of some things. Some people don't get uh, get invited to the conference. Uh, uh, Galula was there, but he was actually kind of marginal in, in French in French imperial military life at the time. He wasn't he wasn't the central figure. Uh, Roger Chanquier, the um, the French theorist, who was probably more visible to uh, to French military elites at the time. Um, uh, much more openly does does things like endorse torture. Um, well, that didn't fit the American liberal story the way they wanted to tell it. It didn't fit the politics the way they wanted to to elaborate them. Um, so uh, I, I don't know the specifics, but I do know he wasn't present, uh, and he would have been the obvious first person to to invite from France. So um, so we get some shaving off of ideas as well. Um, probably fairly explicitly, but the carrying through of ideas isn't supposed to be part of the story, and yet it and yet it seems to be. Uh, whether they whether they knew or acknowledged it or not. So then, what is it exactly about um, the nineteen sixties? In some ways, is the, the answer is pretty obvious: is decolonization and the global Cold War. But certainly, there is also some underlying threats here about um, the kind of. Uh, story that Niles Gilman um, tells in Mandarins of the Future about Cold War social science. There's a story here about the um, the rise of America as the hegemonic power in international relations. There's uh, some sort of story here about the, the the rise of international institutions as a coordinating actor in international politics. Are all those things coming together in the '60s? Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. The um, and, and, and the Gilman book does crop up here um, in in some ways. The um, and you're right. The obvious answer, I think, I, I, at some point, I call it the obvious answer. Is Americans got this particular counterinsurgency because it's the one they ordered, it's the one they wanted, uh, and they were paying the bills. Um, and, and literally paying the bills. The the the, military, the Pentagon budget for research on this grew something like eightfold over a, a handful of years in this period. It was very sudden. Um, there were essentially no official manuals, uh, or almost none in 1945. There's one army, one in the mid-50s, written by a sort of an oddball who was drawing on a variety of random texts he found. By the mid-60s, there were dozens of texts like this. So there's this massive additional... Um, injection of, of kind of intellectual effort, and it's about um, it's about an American decision to do this and to take it seriously. And some of that is is, is Vietnam specifically. Some of it's the, the global Cold War. Some of it's America's complicated relationship with European decolonization, um, and the fact that they were inevitably borrowing ideas from that context by bringing in these these, these European sources. Um, some of it is um, the, the ideological project of American liberal Cold War anti communism. Um, which is very much a, a, a project of, of opposing um, of opposing colonial rule or opposing of, opposing decolonization that wasn't the kind that America decided it happened to want, right? So um, you ended up with a lot of um, a lot of pro-colonial, if you like, activity by the United States colonial in the sort of the narrow European sense. I mean, um, simply because the U.S. was going along with things that appeared to be um, appeared to be anti-communist, and of course the Europeans were very happy to sell uh, Americans on on these things on that basis, uh, or at least to try to. Um, 
and it involves the, the rise of, um, of American social science during this period, specifically modernization theory, um, which was a kind of a, a liberal centrist project in, in most respects. Um, uh, Walt Whitman Rostow was all over this in all sorts of ways um, as a person with policy attachments as one of the core modernization theory uh, intellectuals um, and some of the other guys to to lesser degrees. Uh, Samuel Huntington comes up, up here from time to time, although he was not one of those guys specifically. He was a bit more to the right. Um, so the the folks who were who were forming the core of American um uh, of American uh, kind of progressive um, progressive social science, um, gradualist social science at the time were very much involved in this. And that was new. There hadn't really been social science um, outside of things like kind of um, British imperial anthropology. There hadn't been this kind of involvement from things like political scientists at least before. Um, and so we get this kind of high modernist big structural story about historical progress and change in this kind of stepwise way. Um, that, I mean, the, the, the kind of policy facing book that Rostow writes is literally subtitled a non-communist manifesto. They were, they weren't, they weren't, they, they, they weren't being subtle about it, like not even a little bit. Uh, and they wind up in, in his case, endorsing quite, um, uh, quite, um, quite dramatic levels of violence in, uh, in defense of that. So then in your, in your mind, um, and, and in the book also, what is the, what is the central purpose then? What do we gain from reconstructing this very long run history um, from European small wars running up to the 1960s? Um, is it about, as you say, those intellectual cues and the um, uh, uh, the kind of sometimes unselfconscious um, imbibing of ideas from earlier kinds of wars? And we need to kind of see that sedimentation almost, um, and when we try to understand present counterinsurgency? Yeah, it, um, well, it shows us a few things. It shows us that the, um, uh, it, it shows us that these people were not always doing and thinking what they thought they were. Um, it shows us that they have, they, they were, that they were participants in this sedimentation of ideas over time, and they in turn get sem- get themselves sedimented and picked up by later people later on. Uh, often in, in, in at least somewhat unexpected ways. Um, uh, it shows us that the material on, the sedimented material on which they were drawing was often um, uh, both unattractive and ineffectual. Because as, as I say, these folks did tend to lose in the long run. Um, the Europeans really did lose their empires. The, the project of enforcing European colonial rule did, at least in its formal forms, completely fall apart. Um, so drawing on lessons learned from doing that, replicating those past practices would presumably, even if you wanted to defend these practices, not be the way you'd want to go about it. Um, and of course, then it's also tied up with um, with a great deal of, of really ugly colonial violence along the way as well. So it's also the the attachment to that that past practice to which these folks will tend to claim limited debts. Um, so um, uh, knowingly or otherwise, um, Galula is at least trying not to attach himself back to these sorts of ideas. Um, the earlier counterinsurgents like uh, like Caldwell. Um, really didn't know anything about um, the earliest case in the book is from the American Revolution. He had no idea about any of that, never set foot in America. Uh, and yet ideas about small wars really do date to that European early modern, eventually kind of uh, period of revolutions um, set of set of practices. 
So um, the re- recovering the forgetting shows us both that they were forgetting, that their ideas have internal inconsistencies that we can't tell if we take them at face value, and shows us that they are attached to past practices that are both really, really nasty and also in the long run yet effectual. So if there's a... Um, if there's a knock-on effect toward future practice, it would have to do with uh, with recognizing that our intellectual debts in these areas are not always nice uh, and not always um, not always going to do us any favors. Let's zoom in then on this question of race and colonialism and empire. Um, this is kind of again like a, a different kind of hinge in the book, in in the sense that the small wars, as you say earlier, um, really become this particular kind of counterinsurgent war through the colonial project, right? So help us understand what um, what role play, race plays in this story um, and what changing role it plays in the story if it changes. Um, you, you talk about Victorian racism um, coming together with um, uh, a certain kinds of colonial practices during this time. Um, and I imagine that, you know, very much changes over time. So tell us about that. Yeah, um, so race is central to the story, and it's it's always there, and it's always taking on new forms, if you like. So if we go back to those the, those early modern European contexts, um, uh, there there is a sort of a, a nascent set of set of ideas about race there. The peoples from whom these ideas are being drawn about small warfare are marginalized peoples um, who were who were viewed as in in various ways different at Europe Europe's margins. So if we think about what. I, I understand we now have sort of the long, the long history of ideas about race dating to things like like uh, late medieval Europe. Um, this is about European encounters with Slavic peoples, for example, with with non-white peoples surrounding Europe and so on. Um, so those sorts of ideas, um, European attitude, attitudes toward the Ottoman Empire, for example, would have been rattling around in these ideas from the beginning, although people would not have used the word race. We move on from there to um, to that, that that kind of high colonial period, and somebody like Caldwell uh, routinely talks about race. The word appears on dozens of pages in his book. He uses it in a putatively empirical way to talk about specific people. It's explicitly hierarchical, uh, and it's very much about uh, about justifying specific forms of violence against specific sorts of people. Um, so it, it, by the time we hit that kind of high watermark of explicit and open racial discourse, it's very, very clear that, 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 that this sort of idea is doing central work in these texts. Then it begins to drop away in various respects. Part of that is a kind of a, a 30-year hiatus in, in counterinsurgency talk during the, the two world wars when Europeans are concerned with other things militarily. Um, but when these ideas re- recur after 1945, and especially after 1960, um, uh, people are trying not to talk in those ways anymore. The ideas are still uh, affecting them in various ways, but it, it ceases to be a thing that you you say quite so openly. So somebody like David Galula will will come to America in the early 60s, and the civil rights movement is getting going, and he can we we can safely assume he could see that he wasn't supposed to talk this way, even if he he might have been thinking those things. Um, so what he writes in English for his American audience doesn't talk about race all that explicitly at all. But we see all of these these sorts of um, recurring tropes about, about colonized peoples and about um, kind of dividing and conquering different sorts of peoples described in essentialized ways and so on. Racial categories are plainly operating in his thinking. He's just not using the word. Um, and it kind of gets submerged further from there as we get to, for example, the, the current American counterinsurgents, uh, or at least the, those are the, the very recent past, the 2006 Field Manual of 324, the Petraeus et al. document that, um, with which my book kind of opens in a sense. Um, 
they say they don't want to be racist, and they're kind of liberal centrist American types. They probably think they don't want to be racist, uh, and yet they're still drawing on all of these old ideas, sometimes um, pretty explicitly. They they cite Caldwell as a classic. They cite Galula repeatedly, um, uh, and, and then sometimes quoting without attribution in other instances. So he, he, these ideas seem to be pretty deeply recurring in these spaces. They seem to want to get rid of them, and yet, and yet can't. And of course, the whole context of these wars is still um, overwhelmingly uh, conflicts uh, involving or against non-white peoples outside the North Atlantic. So the entire context remains bound up with racial categories pretty unavoidably. So this stuff is, is still there. Um, even when they try to get rid of it, they find they effectively can't. So that's that, that kind of um, persistent intervening long, long durée again, kind of getting in the way of, of rethinking things. Hmm. And that definitely sounds to me like a plays out that um, that dynamic that you theorize as well about it, kind of um, folding in the ideas of, of the of of the insurrections that they are trying to counter, the insurrections and revolutions they're trying to counter. I mean, you know, as you see, um, part of it, part of the anti-colonial claim is that race should no longer, you know, be function as that categorizing device that it should no longer um, function as the uh, division between um, those who hold power and those who don't, that kind of gets um, reiterated, like conservatively, radically, in a way, recast into the counterinsurgent, counterrevolutionary doctrine. Exactly. So if you go looking for the word race in, 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 in the 2006 manual, um, they use it almost exclusively to refuse it, almost exclusively to declare their own race blindness. And then it sort of crops up in a variety of other contexts to do with... Um, uh, to, to, to do with, um, with, with, with how, how other people's in theaters of wars might feel about race as a category and so on. Um, uh, the manual states very explicitly that race is a, a, a sort of social fiction, that it doesn't exist. It doesn't really exist biologically or anything like that. Don't worry. Um, but then they wind up finding themselves having to talk about it anyway, because, because these wars are still in some sense racially structured in a variety of ways that they kind of can't avoid even if they want to. Which is also then again about that earlier logics getting built in and sedimented in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the um, the method um, and the sources that you use, which I, as a political theorist who is very concerned with genre and text, um, find absolutely fascinating. Um, so you t- um, you use manuals um, as the central source of the book, and this is the way you structure the chapters. Um, one manual for each of the four chapters that form the um, the core um, body of the argument. Um, and you call manuals idealized frameworks for military conduct. And they, they this thinking about the manual as a genre and a kind of source really gets you to some very, very interesting questions about means and ends, about text and context, about practice and ideas. So tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Um... Emmanuel's are uh, sort of a, a form of writing, um, uh, and I'm using the word retrospectively, of course. They wouldn't have used it before, probably sometime in the 1960s for this stuff, or the 50s, maybe a little earlier, certainly not before the 20th century. Um, uh, not so much, at least. Uh, they're one of these sort of sorts of texts that once you look for them, they're kind of everywhere. A lot of what we think of as our, our kind of core the the, the 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 dead white dudes forming the, the old canon of political theory huge amounts of that stuff is actually intended instructionally it's 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 the mirrors for princes genre it's the the kind of pedagogical project of Hobbes's Leviathan 
Um, uh, I mean, if if uh, if the Communist Manifesto is not an instructional text, I don't know what it is. Um, so the, the the instructional purpose of lots of kinds of theoretical writing is uh, is kind of right there before us once we look for it. And those those sorts of especially more applied texts have formed have played a sort of an interesting role in in some of the internal um, historical debates uh, and international relations about the origins of ideas like sovereignty and so on. Um, so these things are there if you're looking for them. Uh, when we look for these more sorts of um, practical text, it does impose, um, sometimes impose certain sorts of methodological constraints or, or requirements on us. Um, most of these folks will not state their political priors up front because that's not what you do when you're looking to instruct people on how to conduct a, a particular applied kind of warfare. Sometimes they even explicitly refuse them. Uh, Caldwell very clearly says that, that he's a theoretical person or a, a sort of anti-theoretical person. He has no interest in, in theoretical priors. Everything should be about doing stuff in, in applied ways. And, um, and he winds up being that person that, that, that John Maynard Keynes talks about, you know, the, the, he, Keynes who says somewhere that, that, that everyone has a theory. He, the person who says he has no theory is just is just beholden to some dead economist. Well, Caldwell, some dead economist is the British Empire. Um, uh, Galula is more theoretically facing. He knows he's drawing on, for example, revolutionary theorists like Mao, um, but is still uh, is still bound up with this idea of teaching us practice, not theory, because he wants to, to, to speak to an applied military audience. Um, and we see versions of this this sort of tension right through to the, the 2006 manual where the, the underlying theoretical apparatus isn't really you with warfare at all. It's about administration. It's about bureaucracy. It's about organiz- it's, it's drawn from organizational studies largely and from, from, from management science and things like this. So we have all of these underlying priors and because they're not usually all that explicitly stated, sometimes they are, which is interesting, but because they're not explicitly stated, we have to reconstruct them or go looking for them in autobiographical writings. Um, if you weren't already convinced that somebody like Caldwell had this deep set of racial structuring ideas about the world, his memoirs will will, will disabuse you of that, I promise. Um, if you are confused about the ideological priors of someone like Johann Ebelt, the, uh, the Hessian mercenary who's the subject of the first case based on his, his eight years or so in America, we can read his diaries, which tell us a lot about how he sees the world. Um, some of which seems to be just confused, and he's not because he really isn't a very theoretical person. He's a little bit all over the map, um, but we can reconstruct his basic sets of set of ideas about the world by looking at things like that. Um, so manuals require us to do certain sorts of things in terms of reconstructing the ideas rather than just looking for them on the page. Hopefully, we're doing some of that in, in close reading anyway, but you really have to do it here. Um, uh, once we do that, they tell us something about the uh, the nexus of theory and practice and how it operates historically over time. So how how ideas about practice draw on theory, how theory winds up drawing on past practice or trying to, uh, and, and so on. Um, and because manuals operate at that that kind of doctrinal nexus of um, of thinking about. Um, thinking about um, uh, what's worked in practice in the past versus how we conceptualize the world because they're at that that, that nexus. Um, they're forced to do that translating work back and forth between abstractions and practices, um, between past and present and so on. Uh, and we don't always see them explicitly doing that or claiming to do that, but they're tacking back and forth across those dyads um, much or most of the time uh, because they have to. And do you find it necessary then to treat these authors and in the case of, I think, the fourth manual, these, this multiple 
set this cacophony cacophony of authors. <laughs> I love that word. It always trips me up. Um, do you find it necessary then to treat them with a special methodological care because they're not, you know, they're not the in a way, not the classic kind of authors that intellectual historians and in a way political theorists are used to dealing with. Um, how did you read them? Uh, I mean, ultimately, I'm not a trained historian. So the, the, my best answer in some sense is carefully. Um, but um, I tried to think contextually. The, the, the theoretical sources that I to, to, to which I tie myself are, are chiefly kind of um, kind of Skinnerian Cambridge School sorts of sorts of folks and, and attached stuff. Uh, and I, I, th- I think those folks would recognize um, an applied character in the sorts of texts they study. So it should be a good fit in that sense. Um, I read with a an assumption that there are going to be some some unspoken things that need to be teased out. At least if I want to make the kind of argument or or engage in the kind of analysis that I that I want to to make. Um, and I. Um, I read with an eye to connections to prior texts and concurrent other texts in the field, and because um, be- because all areas of, of 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 textual work widen out over time, they they expand in scope and scale. Um, the number of these texts is, uh, I mean, circa eighteen hundred, there were maybe probably less than a dozen of them we regard as particularly classical and well-preserved and important that we look back to. Uh, and they're mostly um, French and German early moderns. Um, by 1960, there are dozens upon dozens of these things in multiple languages, uh, across multiple settings, trying to do multiple things, uh, and just, just working out whether or not there are connections and how many of those connections might be becomes, becomes more complicated. So looking for discursive points of overlap looking for references shared, literal referencing sometimes in the form of citation, but I mean, more often just um, shared anecdotes, shared uh, rhetorical devices, uh, stuff like this. So the, um, uh, the, the the French and the British circa 1900 are actually seeing very different things about how to conduct colonial warfare. Caldwell is this sort of kind of violent reactionary, um, whatever it is that he is. Um, the, the the French, like uh, like, like uh, Hubert Lyotet, are already engaging in this sort of he uses the word oil spot, um, the, this sort of more um, more nascently high modern, uh, more a sort of approach that involves a more targeted kind of violence and a kind of a generation of political order or an attempt to, it has economic aspects. It looks much more like the, the kind of the, the early to mid 20th century conception of colonialism that we, we associate with, um, uh, with, with the economic devices of these things, with, uh, with targeted administrative practices and so on, none of which interests Caldwell at all. So we see there's, there's a divergence going on during a period where we think of these things as, as pretty tightly overlapping. So it shows us that these folks are maybe not reading one another for one thing, although they were in translation back and forth, uh, and shows us that um, uh, the, 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 there's more than one track on which the story is running at any given time. This whole conversation has taken place under the specter of um, present counterinsurgent wars, post 9-11 counterinsurgent wars. And this is also the kind of contemporary global context that you um, very poignantly end the book with in the conclusion. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, how you think this theoretical and intellectual history argument might um, reinform, recast, or illuminate our understanding of present warfare, present counterinsurgent warfare? Sure. Um, well, the, um, I mean, the kind of the, the present long moment of this stuff, um, kind of begins and ends in Afghanistan, right? 
begins uh, begins at the end of 2001 and ends um, about a year and a half ago now when the war was um, was was um, not winding down so much as suddenly ending um, with the the Taliban occupation of Kabul as the Americans were preparing to withdraw. Um, so that, along with Iraq, was what motivated the, the production of the 2006 manual. Um, what what does all of this all of this historical material tell us about that present? Well, it tells us that um, it reminds us this should be obvious, but we seem to need it that these things have tended to fail in the past, and they have failed for reasons to do with doctrinal choices about the kinds of wars people have tried to fight. I say try. What's happened on the ground is often much messier and more violent, and it doesn't reliably reflect the manuals. The manuals are not actual records of, of, um, of, of reliable practice. Um, but even imagining that they're trying to do these things, the attempts to do these things in the past have tended not to go very well. Uh, so it reminds us that we can, um, we should at, at a minimum approach these things with a, a fair degree of, uh, of humility, even if we imagine we want to try to do them. Um, I would hope we wouldn't, but. Um, it reminds us that um, that our ideas are are not very new for the most part. Uh, we translate them, we we reframe them, we attach them to new trappings of various sorts, like American military bureaucracy in its elaborate current form. Um, but we um, uh, we we don't tend to change all that much about what hasn't worked in the past. When we change our minds about things, it tends to be for political, circumstantial, ideological reasons, rather than any kind of actual, um, any kind of actual efficient adaptation to the applied problem of winning these wars. So again, imagining even that you wanted to fight these things, um, we tend to get it wrong. Um, perhaps we should avoid doing so. Um, and of course, there are all sorts of perfectly good political reasons not to try in the first place. But imagining we're imagining we're not going to catch people on that argument, at least we can we can show them that it's a uh, that it has tended to go badly, in, even in in in, uh, in theory. I can't even um, begin to imagine how what you do after working on a topic like this. But can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Uh, yeah. Well, it. Um, uh, I'm 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 that guy that took too long to revise a dissertation that took too long to write. Um, the um, I, th- I thinking of the, um, the, the that anecdote with which the book and the project started. I think I first read that article about 2010, so that, that gives you a sense of the of, of how much too long this has taken. Defended the dissertation in 2015. Um, the um, the next thing I think we'll focus a little bit more explicitly on. Um, in a sense, it'll be a political theory or an international political theory project. And I'm interested in uh, what I'm calling reactionary international thought. So I'm interested in um, uh, accounts of world ordering or of world politics or what, you know, since, since, since the post-war period, we call international relations theory that are explicitly right wing um, and explicitly um, not just conservative, but reactionary or nostalgic or backward looking. Um, and there's an interesting emerging literature on, on, um, on, on these sorts of ideas, especially in the post-war period. I think I'm interested in the longer haul. So I think it'll be a, a similarly structured, um, a similarly structured story, uh, looking at several cases. Um, I want to start with Joseph de Maistre, uh, around the French revolution who had quite elaborate ideas about how European political order should be structured, um, in response to French revolutionary transformation. Um, and... 
Uh, I'm not sure what the, the full population of people will be, but I'd like to look at Samuel Huntington at the end as, a, as an example of this sort of reactionary thinking about, about world politics. So that's, I think that's the next project. I'm, I'm just writing the grant now, but that's where it's, uh, that's where <laughs> so it's, that's at. where it all begins with the, with the grant, <laughs> as we all know. Someone's got to pay for it. So. Well, that sounds so incredibly important and so fascinating, and I cannot wait for it. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network to talk about this very wonderful and timely um, book with us. Um, and have a good evening. Thanks. It's been great. Take care. <laughs>